Greetings and welcome on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute uh, to this spring webinar lecture series on faith and reason in medieval thought. Um, We're right here at the midpoint of our series. Um, and this series, as I've mentioned each week, reflects the type of programming that we regularly offer for students at the University of Chicago um, to complement the great studies that they're already doing there. Um, today, we not only bring it to you, but through our partners to students across the nation. We are grateful to the Collegium Institute, the Nova Forum, the St. Benedict Institute, the Beatrice Institute, the Harvard Catholic Center, and the Calvert House Catholic Center, each for co-sponsoring this event. If you want to support our work bringing the Catholic intellectual tradition to the university and to a broader culture, you can donate today at www.lumenchristi.org donate. It is a distinct pleasure to welcome to today's stage University of Chicago's own Wilhelmine Otten. Professor Otten regularly presents for us, and in fact, two weeks from, uh, two weeks from now, on March 19th at 5 p.m., we will be welcoming her back with Professor McGinn for a conversation about apocalypticism in times of crisis. Uh, we haven't yet put out the publicity on this, but stay tuned for more details. Next week, our series will continue with Professor Katie uh, Bugis from the University of Notre Dame on Julian of Norwich. You can see our full schedule of upcoming lectures for this series on our website, including recently added lectures on, uh, by Bernard McGinn on Meister Eckhart and David Albertson on Nicholas of Cusa. I'll now hand it over to Rob, who helped organize this series for a more formal introduction and moderation of tonight's event. Rob? Thank you, Michael. Yes, uh, as, as Michael is starting to, to talk about our, our upcoming events, we have a tremendous lineup coming up, which you, and you can find past events on YouTube. Uh, as you've seen, this series is called Reason and Wisdom in Medieval Christian Thought, and it aims to point out uh, different windows into the great thinkers of the medieval Christian tradition, as well as uh, with a particular attention to the tension that we find between more contemplative and more rational or dialectical approaches to seeking the face of God. Uh, tonight, as Michael has already said as well, we have a special treat and a UChicago uh, 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 scholar here. Professor Wilhelmine Otten teaches a, as a professor of theology and as a professor of history of Christianity, as well as in the history department. And she is the director of the Martin Marty Center. Professor Otten's expertise is wide ranging as we can see from her newly published book uh, which is entitled Thinking Nature and the Nature of Thinking, John, from John Scott Erugina to Ralph Waldo Emerson. And that will be coming out with Stanford University Press. Lumen Christi had hoped and planned to do an event about this book this spring. Uh, that will be postponed uh, in, in, until we can work that out with, uh, with the current situation. Uh, but right now, let me, let me welcome uh, Professor Otten to, uh, and invite her to turn on her, her camera and unmute her mic. Very good. All right. Let me, let me hand the, the floor over to you, Professor. Okay. Thank you. Thank you um, for the introduction and the opportunity to speak uh, in this lecture series. And I'll be speaking on Abelar and Bernard and I've called it that um, the title that they're theologians at cross purposes, right? 
I thought about that quite a bit and, and came to the decision to talk about seeing them uh, as talking at cross purposes, because I think that is more useful than seeing them uh, speaking as enemies. In a way, in their own lifetime, they were enemies, right? But we have the benefit of hindsight and we should actually make use of that benefit. And that benefit of hindsight uh, allows us to really see beyond the opposition that they must have felt in their own lifetime, right? And we can see them as, as a case of elective affinities that they had certain themes in common as well. And one of the themes that they had is in common was that they were advocating a kind of reform, whether it was a reform of monastic life, which I think both Bernard and Abelard were interested in, but also a kind of reform of how to think about and talk about tradition. But seeing them as theologians uh, at cross purposes presupposes that there is a kind of a common background, right? Something against which their different paths can be measured and assessed in some ways, so that it's not just a random uh, difference that we signal between them. There are two elements that I want to highlight as important in what I see as this common background. One is the aspect of monastic life, and the other is the aspect of the liberal arts, the educational practice of the liberal arts. As for the monastic life, the rule of St. Benedict plays an important role both in um, Abelard and in Benedict. Right? It was the rule written by Benedict for his own community in the fifth, sixth century, but it had become normative for European monastic life since the era of Charlemagne. It's actually changing in the 12th century when it gets competition from other rules like the rule of St. Augustine, but both Bernard and Abelard share the love uh, for the rule of St. Benedict and live in its shadow, if you will. The second point I want to mention is the liberal arts. Um, that's important too, because since the patristic era of Augustine and Jerome, it had been accepted for Christians to read non-Christian text. And if you widen the circle, you can say that it had been acceptable to adopt a non-Christian educational practice because the liberal arts was the Roman educational practice and Christians adopted it and they adopted it in the monasteries as well. The liberal arts divided into the trivium uh, consisting of grammar, rhetoric and dialectic and the quadrivium of music, arithmetic, geometry and astronomy were the functioning uh, educational curriculum uh, of the Middle Ages. Both Abelard and Bernard would have shared that education. Abelard also clearly excelled in it. Bernard used it, but outwardly frowned upon the vanity he saw it engender in others, especially in folks like Abelard. Still, it is something that they have in common. In the 12th century then, which is the backdrop for the lives of both Abelard and Bernard, um, there was an age uh, of bloom for France and Europe in general. And with it, it was also actually an age of a population boom. And with it came the shifting of paradigms. That's true in the monastic sense because 
there was competition of other rules, but it's also true in um, the sense of education. There, it was still before the, uh, the, the foundation of the universities, but education is booming and you have conflicting models of education and you have also comp competition between masters and Abelard certainly gets his share of that. We will get to monastic life when we turn to Abelard, but, uh, to Bernard, but we first turn to Abelard. Abelard is important because also the trivium um, uh, of the liberal arts especially takes off and Abelard is a model for its study, especially the studies in dialectic, which soar to new heights. Abelard really embodies those developments, right? Let's take a look at how that works and let's take a look at his life because we have a kind of autobiography of Abelard that is set in a rather pessimistic vein, the so-called Historia Calamitatum, the history of his catastrophes. It was ostensibly written to console a friend who's remained anonymous, but the premise is that Abelard consoles this friend by reporting on his own life as even more calamitous as that of his friend who needed consoling. And calamitous it was. But those calamities, if you think of them or read them carefully, are always uh, interwoven with educational moves that Abelard makes. So for instance, he says at early on that he exchanges the weapons of the battlefield for the arms of dialectic. There you have it, education dialectic. He then gets into a debate and lifelong enmity with his teacher, William of Champeaux, on universals, namely whether universal terms have a, like love and justice, have an existence in things themselves or are abstractions, mere names. Another question of logic, right? And finally, after he's exhausted philosophy and wants to study theology, the greatest battle of all erupts with his teacher Anselm of Laon. The cathedral behind me actually is the cathedral of Laon, which is famous because it has cows hanging out from it. Um, so I couldn't pass up that opportunity, but Abelard would have been in that cathedral. He had the greatest battle with his teacher Anselm of Laon, who's not the same as Anselm of Canterbury. The drama that unfolds between them uh, is, is really still memorialized in the town in that you have an Anselm street and an, an Abelard street and they butt heads. They really run into each other and go in opposite directions. But the story that Abelard tells about that Anselm is interesting and emblematic for his approach to learning, which is new at the time. Anselm lectured and would have gone through the church fathers and their commentary on scripture. Abelard attended those lectures, but was somewhat older because he had studied philosophy first, and he's bored by those lectures, so he no longer shows up. His fellow students see that and meet him on the street or in the pubs or whatever the student culture was, and, and talk to him about it and tease him with it because he says that he can do a better job than Anselm. And they make a bet. They want him to lecture. Uh, he takes that bet very seriously and he accepts the challenge, but he says he will only do it if he can do it the next day. That is agreed. They give him a very difficult passage from Ezekiel 
and Abelard gives a lecture that is better than those of Anselm, as a result of which he's chased out of town and he can no longer lecture there, hence the two roads uh, in, in um, uh, Lens. But when he has a dis his disagreement with Anselm, what he says is important. He says, I proceed not through venerable tradition, long practice, but I proceed through my talent, my ingenium, as it is called. So what he opposes there is the weight of tradition, which has really become, had really become a weight by that time in which you couldn't see the forest for the trees and his own keen insight, which he thought would give him a new opening of that tradition. It shows us also how uncertain the educational adventure was at the time, because education was not very formalized or institutionalized. And private teachers like Abelard had to make it on their own, which offered great opportunities. And Abelard was endlessly famous and everybody who meant something in the 12th century would have studied with Abelard at one stage or another. But it also created many, many pitfalls, and Abelard was the victim of that as well. He went to uh, Notre Dame, was master of the cathedral school there, and then the episode with Eloise um, uh, happens, who was the niece of a canon there, Fulbert, whom he seduces, and they fall in love, and their love becomes in many ways a messy affair. She gets pregnant. She actually doesn't want to get married because she wants to be his, his partner, but not his wife. Uh, she does give birth to their son in Brittany, Astrolabe, and she's then sheltered in a convent in Argentau. She does not want to get married, but they do get married because Abelard wants to do right by her. But when she's kind of leaving town, her uncle is fearful that Abelard will not live up to his promise. And he has Abelard castrated in one of the most infamous scenes actually uh, in the Middle Ages. That is literally the end of their affair. He urges her to take the veil before he joins himself the monastery of Saint-Denis. She bears a grudge ever since, for he seems not to have trusted her nor her love by wanting her to enter before he did. Why I'm mentioning this is because the initial history of my calamities gets a response years later from Eloise, a letter, and that then unfolds into a correspondence between Abelard and Eloise, which eventually results in her requirement to write a rule for women, which the Holy Fathers had not done, and Abelard actually writing that rule, right? Um, when I look at Abelard over the years, it is interesting to see how he was on the one hand completely confident of his ingenium, his talent, but deeply uncertain, you can say, about where he fit in society. He had a religious drive, but he was not cut out for obedience uh, as a monk. He also was not a very successful abbot, which he was later on. Um, he seemed to have a clear in intellectual drive to become, say, a university master, but this was before the universities. So he's deeply uncertain about his precise vocation. Um, 
but he has a clear historical awareness, which I would call a new element in the 12th century. And we'll get to it with Bernard too. Abelard wanted most of all to find the root model of the religious philosopher, if you will, whom he saw in the terms of his time as a monk scholar. He described it furthermore because he was somewhat conspiratorial or saw himself always persecuted, he described it in what I've called auto-martyrological terms. Antony in the desert, who stood up to secular philosophers, or Jerome in the desert, who worried that his erudition made him more a Ciceronian than a Christian, those were Abelard's favorite models. And those, especially those of Jerome, were his worries. He will later say that he does not want to be an Aristotelian if it means that he would have to sacrifice Christ. But then he will also say that when he argues with his opponents, he's not doing anything else than Christ is doing, right? Christ is the, the verbum and the logos, and Abelard as the logician finds a similarity there. Identification with Christ is actually one of the problematic traits Abelard displays. He does not distrust Eloise as much as she thinks, but he seems to rather worry that after his castration, he cannot really be a monk because there's no more desire to curtail. He's been punished in such a way that it deprives him of the opportunity to do penance himself. So she has to do penance for him. She and her nuns in another identification with Christ have to weep on his grave. His identification with Christ on this point is, is, is marked and somewhat concerning. But as a monk, Abelard can only really muddle through. As an abbot with monks who try to poison him, he says he'd rather be with the Saracens or the Turks than with these Christians. But as a scholar, he interestingly pursues a kind of ascetic ascendance existence with his students who are gathered in the paraclete, in a hermitage, which will later become Eloise's um, convent. For there were no universities yet. And he, he causes another stir because people accuse him of singling out one person of the Trinity rather than seeing the whole Trinity there. Still, however unsecure as a monk, as a scholar, he's undeterred. Here we see the need for historical perspective creep up as well. He wants to find out, just as in the scene with Anselm, what the fathers really thought. And we see it a few times in his work as a theme. Uh, for instance, we see it in the letter that uh, the demand that Eloise uh, gives to Abelard, and maybe we can go to that slide, where she demands that he writes a rule for women, which we don't have, right? And that would be um, interested, yes, because he says that the, uh, the other is that you will prescribe some rule for us and write it down, a rule which shall be suitable for women and also describe fully the manner and habit of our way of life, which we find was never done by the Holy Fathers, right? Um, another case, he actually, in his answer to Eloise and in the rule, he then says that he does that also. Maybe we can look at that really quickly. Um, yes, um, exactly. Through the many documents, it's underlined of the Holy Fathers and the best customs of, of um, monasteries. 
But we also see it in the Sick at Non, which is a methodological handbook that Abelard wrote, in which he gave about 150 contradictory statements from the church fathers. He did not give a solution, but he gave rules how to adjudicate those contradictions, right? And he does say in the beginning, it's my purpose, according to my original intention, to gather together various sayings of the Holy Fathers, which have occurred to me as being surrounded by some type of uncertainty because of their seeming incompatibility. The historical perspective for Abelard, as it did not for Bernard, does not um, entail that there would not be a unified tradition. For Abelard, it meant that with the use of your talent, you could straighten out those difficulties, right? Um, what we see in this actually very important passage from the preface to the Sick at Non is um, a deeper kind of guide, guidance that he gives us, uh, namely how to start your research in a way. He says these, uh, just following where I left off, these may encourage inexperienced readers to engage in that most important exercise, inquiry into truth. And then he says, the way to start inquiry into truth is by doubting. So that's not by enumerating as Anselm of Lahn did, but by doubting, because then through doubt, you come to inquiry and through inquiry, you ultimately come to truth. And again, Christ pops up because Christ gave a spiritual instruction by his own example, when at the age of about 12, he said and asked questions. If Christ could argue in the temple, why can Abelard not argue in the schools, right? Um, Abelard gets a few times in theological hot water, and that has to do with his fascination for the Trinity. And he wrote about four, uh, he wrote three um, uh, theologies. Abelard actually coined the term theology, on the, and they're all on the Trinity. Abelard had a way of writing in fits and, and starts, which meant that the, the three theologies are actually very much the same in essence, the same scaffolding, but then he expands. So the Sumi Boni is the first one that he was actually forced to throw into the fire. It's a, a, a terrible case of book burning. Uh, then he has the Theologia Christiana and finally the Theologia Scholarium, which we have in two versions and, and is not really finished. Um, the, two, the, the three theologies have two things in common. One is that they all see Trinity as central to the Christian faith. And he sees the Trinity as central to the Christian faith because it is the central tenet that is based in the word of God, in this case, Christ, the incarnate God himself, who speaks of the Father and the Holy Spirit. So only the Trinity can be related uh, to God's self. Uh, and that is why Abelard sees all his theologies as having to be Trinitarian in structure. A second thing they have in common is that they operate very much on the level of language or dialectics, if you will. If you could really put things right, Abelard thinks, if you could use your engenium, then everything would be solved. He tries to find analogies for the Trinity. For instance, he says, when you think about a person and their persons in the Trinity, you have a person who is speaking, you have a person to whom you can speak, and there's a person about whom you can speak. And that can all be the same person. 
And that is a way for him to kind of envisage Trinitarian relations without falling into Tritheism, right? Having three gods. Those analogies are somewhat successful, but especially in the Theologia Scholarium, he actually tries to deep, probe deeper even still and tries to solve the mystery of salvation also on, on the plane of language. And for that, it seems his logical means were inadequate. So he comes to sort of grammatical questions uh, to the uh, effect that if a person is called salvandus, someone who needs to be saved, does that mean that the onus is put on God to save him? Uh, that, of course, he cannot make work. So there is a, a, a problem with his theologies in that they're not completely successful. Here, his ingenium, in a way, does not completely succeed. Where he's more successful, and those are two more slides that I want to look at for Abelard, is in terms of incarnation. He follows there on, um, on, on Anselm of Canterbury, this time, who wrote Why God Became Man, but very much operated on a sense that uh, if we have justice in the universe, it does not only apply to, to humanity, but also to God. So Anselm operated within one unbroken framework, if you will, of justice. Abelard will very much differ in that he sees different uh, levels almost, different rules for God and um, humanity. Um, but the way, and, and in the process, this is also different from Anselm, he pays attention to Christ's life, right? He says, um, it seems that we're justified in Christ's blood and reconciled to God in this sense, namely that through this singular grace shown to us by which his son accepted our nature, showing us the way in that nature by word as well as example, a very significant 12th century theme lived out by Christ, persisted until death. He bound us to himself more fully through love so that inflamed as we are by such a great promise of divine grace, true love no longer fears to bear anything on his behalf. So Christ is the example of love first through his teaching, but then through the sacrifice of giving his life. And maybe we can have the next slide where he says that more clearly. He says, after all, everyone becomes more just, that is more loving of God, after Christ's passion than before, inasmuch as a fulfilled promise inspires one to love more than a promised hope for. So his idea is not to have a kind of a logical framework in which God is forced to become incarnate in a way that Anselm does, but to see Christ's life and his giving of his life for the salvation of humanity and to see that as an act of love that cannot but engender love in the people witnessing it. That is all of humanity. So Abelard's uh, incarnation theology is actually not found in his theologies, but as a question, uh, it, it emerges in his commentary on Romans, indicating the, the embryonic development of, of scholastic uh, logic and scholastic theology. And finally, I will just briefly touch on his ethics, where Abelard also made great strides in that he takes ethics out of the monastic sphere, 
in which it's positioned in um, a Bernard who would never write an ethics, but still um, keeps the element of discerning oneself and redefines sin. Uh, he's no longer talking about virtues and vices, which would be the monastic habit, but he sees sin, it's underlined here, as a way to scorn God or to consent to what one believes shouldn't be consented to. That is sinning. No one's ignorance is a sin and neither is the disbelief with which no one can be saved. And I selected this passage because Abelard, a very atypical in the Middle Ages, does not really see the Jews as Christ killers as the, the crude way um, the medi uh, medieval thinkers would sometimes uh, see them. Because as he says uh, in 131, those who persecuted Christ or his followers and believed they should be persecuted, we say sin through action. They still killed a person, right? Nevertheless, they would have sinned more seriously through fault if they had spared them contrary to conscience. Um, so basically he's not accusing uh, the Jews here because they, they, they would have sinned more seriously through fault if they'd spared him uh, const, uh, const, contrary to conscience. From Avalar, I will move to Bernard now and maybe we can look at his timeline uh, real quick. If there ever was a mysterious figure in the history of Christian thought, it would be, I think, Bernard, who is inscrutable in so many ways. We have no Historia Calamitatum, nor a history of his successes would be, would be more like him. Uh, we don't have that. Bernard is the monk. He aligns himself with the new movement of the Cistercians, the new order founded by Robert of Molem, but made famous by Bernard. He's been called the chimera of his age, because he enforced the rule of St. Benedict, which actually uh, requires you to stay in place, yet he was always on the go. He was actually not obeying the rule that he imposed on himself and on his um, community. Right? The difficulty with Bernard is that we do have letters, but not a, a, an autobiographical document. But there's a letter that gives a good education of how Bernard is radical in his reform of monastic life. Where Abelard was the scholar trying to find through the fathers how monk scholars like Jerome were the archetypal models. Abelard, uh, sorry, Bernard is the one who really applies the rule of, of Saint Benedict and reads it as directly as possible. There was a Bishop Alexander who wrote to him to Bernard because a monk, uh, sorry, a canon, Philip, was on his way from Lincoln in England to the Holy Land. But he stopped in Clairvaux um, and he didn't go back. He didn't go on actually. He didn't go on to Jerusalem. Bishop Alexander has to solve that because there are ecclesial logistics involved and writes Bernard a letter and Bernard responds. Um, and he retorts, because the bishop wasn't completely happy, one can imagine, what is there to complain? The monk is there, he's here in Jerusalem. So this strong identification with, of Clairvaux with Jerusalem means that he takes the rule of St. Benedict really not just literally, but very directly. He has a, a, an old fashioned, if you will, reading of monastic life 
where reform was the rigueur in the progressivist 12th century, his return is a return at fontaine to the source, the only source of monastic life, the rule. But returning to the rule, and that's where the reform aspect comes in, is at the same time raising the stakes of what is involved in the rule. This is no ordinary monastery, this is Jerusalem. Monks are no ordinary monks. Monks should all lead lives as if they are in Jerusalem. But not only that, they should all lead lives as if the central truth of Christianity, the sacrificial death and resurrection of Christ, depend directly on them. Bernard is keenly aware that the greatest danger of monastic life is not rebellion, but indifference, getting set in your ways, being lukewarm, lacking the zeal and the passion with which you once entered that life. So Bernard, who I would call not just an architect, but a great technician of monastic life, has attention for novices and asks his, his friends and comrades, Ilred of Rivaux, for instance, to write for novices. He knows what is at stake in being a monk, not just for himself, that's why he maybe was traveling so much, but also for his community. He knows that the monk who enters intrigued by the fervor of Cistercian life may experience second thoughts a year or so later. He also knows, and that is the genius of his on the steps of pride and humility, that when Benedict sees the degrees of humility as a ladder that goes up to God, there must also be a way down. For not all monks are successful monks. There can be failure. But the failing monk is a model also for the other monks in that they can learn from him how not to behave. Carolyn Bynum has argued that the problem of the rule of St. Benedict was that it was a rule for community life, for Cenobitic life, but it treats the community as a, as a gathering, an assemblage, a collective of individuals. And therein lies Bernard Power. He's trying to cement the community. And he does so by zooming in so much on the individual monk that we overlook that that individual is not just the personal eye, but becomes the communal eye for Bernard. That the striving selves of all the monks should be blended into one unanimous, unicordial, if such is a word, a one-hearted community. That allows him, that focus allows him to iron out the faults and the creases. Yes, Bishop Alexander was not happy that Philip didn't move on to Jerusalem, but in the grand scheme of things, he was in Jerusalem, so why bother? The intensity of Bernardian rhetoric is unsurpassed, as I will try to see um, show in a few passages. What he lacks, however, is the meta-level speak, the second-order language that we begin to see in Abelard, and especially in the later scholastics. Bernard will always speak in biblical language and biblical imagery. And that is why Jean Mabillon, his editor in the 17th century, called him the last of the fathers. This is somewhat ironic if we factor in that Abelard tried so hard, really, to do justice to the position of the fathers. Bernard represents an older view of history in which he usurps their voice and mixes it with his own. 
confident as he is that his powerful message is theirs as well as his and gains more power by being theirs as well as his. This is not a matter of imitation, but of mastery. The one who despises the liberal arts for their prideful production of vanity is himself a rhetorician of unsurpassed mastery. Bernard is, um, uh, uh, Bernard is very much uh, um, the rhetorician then, and I want to look at a few passages that bear that out. And in the process say that um, he did not appreciate clearly the, the contribution of, of Avalar and ridiculed him by saying, we do not need the gospel of Peter. We have our four evangelists, we do not need the gospel of Peter. So everything in Bernard is in his language. The mastery of rhetoric makes him the master technician of monastic life and biblical exegesis becomes effective drama in which the monk decides over life and death, not just his life and death, but Christ's life and death. But at the same time, everything has already always been said and is already found in scripture. So this first um, passage is from a sermon on conversion, which he held in 1140 in uh, um, uh, Notre Dame. Uh, so, you know, people like Avalar um, might conceivably have heard it or others, um, where he was actually trying to say to the schoolmen that conversion is not just conversion, conversion of the heart, but is actually taking up the monastic life he really ranked monastic life as higher than scholastic life, which would go counter to the times where scholasticism became very famous, but Bernard lays his cards on the table. But I'll just want to point to a few passages. It says, you have come to believe to hear the word of God. I see no other reason why you should rush here like this. From these words, we see clearly that our true life is to be found only through conversion and there's no other way to enter upon it. Then I, I skip a few lines. This is the beginning of God speaking. And this word, which is addressed to all those who are converted in heart, seems to have run on ahead. It is a word which not only calls them back, but leads them back and brings them face to face with themselves. For it is not so much a voice of power, but a ray of life. For what is the purpose of the ray of life or the word, but to bring man to know himself? Same theme as Abelard, but a very different approach. Indeed, the book of conscience is opened, the wretched passage of life up to now recalled to mind. The sad story is told again. Reason is enlightened, and what is in the memory is unfolded as though set out before each man's eyes. But reason and memory are not so much of the soul as themselves the soul, so that it is both gazer and that which is gazed upon, brought face to face with itself and overcome by the force of its realization of what it is seeing. It judges itself in its own court. Who can bear this judgment without pain? This idea that the monk is confronted with himself, right? It, both the gazer and that which is gazed upon. That is what creates the intensity of monastic life as Bernard wants you to lead it. You judge yourself in your own court. Uh, it seems that after this sermon, about 40 people decided to join the, 
the monastic life, so it had a success. Um, the next uh, passage I want to look to is uh, two passages that go back to back, and I'll go through them relatively quickly, on incarnation. He preached three sermons on the nativity, or we think he preached them, but he reworked his sermons. Um, and I just want to show a little bit in this one, the drama that he sets up. I don't need to read it all uh, out completely. But it says, um, a boy is born and the boy is God. Then the mother is a virgin and the birth is painless, darkness, then a light new from the sky, an angel trumpets joy, praises from a formation of soldiers high above. Glory goes to God, peace to men of goodwill. Shepherds running up and down, and they find the word that's been said to them, and they tell others. You see a lot of drama, a lot is happening. Um, then he actually sets out the gold and silver phases. Um, but I wanted to point to uh, uh, the sentences right after that. Consider diligently, says the wise one, the things put before thee. And I recognize for my own the time and the place of his birth. Tender infant frame, wailing, screaming child. And then the poverty and the wakefulness of those to whom the birth of the saving God is first announced, the shepherd. These things are mine. They happen for me. They are laid down before me. They are put there for me to imitate. What I find fascinating, especially here, is the kind of cosmic drama in the beginning of the word, right? Because the word comes to earth. But the word, and that's a, a pun that you see in latter better, better than in English, the word is an infant, an infant who cannot speak. So the speechless baby, that is the word. And through the drama and from the shepherds to the golden faces, he sets that all out. And then he says, these things are mine. Uh, they happen for me. I as monk must this, must contemplate this. And if we continue with the next uh, passage, um, which goes on, at nighttime in wintertime is when Christ was born, still the infant, right? By chance, this because this is the universal God too, winter, summer, day, night are his for the choosing. And it was by chance he was born in this unkind season at dead of night. Other children do not choose the hour of their birth. Christ was God and he had the force and the wisdom of God. About to be born then, God's son he'd be and in a position to pick what time he wanted, he picked the most unkempt, all the more for a child and son of a poor mother with hardly enough of swaddling to wrap him in, barely the crib to put him down. They were needy, very needy, but I hear no mention of soft pelts. The first Adam is decked out in fur tunics, the second is whopped in swaddling. Um, I will leave it at that and go to two more passages on resurrection. But you see the same thing that, that there's... Um, a change of perspective all the time. It is the infant who you commiserate with in the cradle, but he's also the universal God who picks the time in the calendar that he's be, that he's going to be born, right? And that um, kaleidoscopic uh, perspective change all the time in Bernard is really what makes for the dynamics of his rhetoric. 
And I have two passages to close from Sermons on the Resurrection, where you see that masterfully done. In the first one here, he is comparing Christ's resurrection with the resurrection that the prophet Elisha performed when he was laying on a dead boy who then was brought to life, right? But Elisha, Elisha resuscitated someone else. Christ's trick, if you will, is that he resuscitates himself. So it is a far superior resurrection, right? Um, and he says in the middle there, behold about Elijah, how many years he has been lying in his grave since he was unable to raise himself from the dead, hoping for someone else, for him who in his own person triumphed over the rule of death. Of death. That is why we speak about others having been raised from the dead, whereas Christ has risen. He alone came out of the grave as a victor on his own strength. That is another respect in which the Lion of Judah has triumphed. And now the final passage um, on the resurrection. The Lion of Judah has triumphed. And here you see him play, and that's the final point I want to point out, play with a fourfold sense of scripture. Often in handbook of medieval exegesis, you hear of the literal, the allegorical, the moral or tropological sense and the anagogical sense, and they're neatly kind of distinguished, right? What you get in, um, in Bernard is they're almost thrown into a vortex and they all become part of his rhetoric. And that rhetoric punches you in, in, in the stomach, if you will, and draws you in, right? You cannot almost escape it. The Lion of Judah has triumphed. The whelp of the Lion has been resurrected by the paternal voice. He who did not come down from the wood, the cross, came forward out of the closed tomb. Let our enemies judge who so curiously fortified the monument, sealing the stone with the custodians that enormous stone that those pious women were looking for was removed by the angel after the Lord had already risen. And so scripture says, the angel said on it. Therefore, the revived body no doubt came out of the closed tomb. That very same body has come to life out of the closed womb of the virgin and entered the conclave of the disciples through closed doors. But there's a place from behind the closed doors of which he did not want to come, the jail of hell. He has broken down the iron gates, destroyed all its bars in order safely to bring out his people whom he had redeemed from the hand of the enemy, that the crowds dressed in white who had washed their clothes and made them whiter in the blood of the lamb might come out of the crowded gates. And he who has seen testifies. So you see in a way how Bernard does not give us a questio about incarnation, but he shows us through masterful rhetorical exegesis how Christ came out of the closed tomb. He came out of Mary's closed womb. Um, he, he went through doors and, and, and penetrated the conclave of the disciple. But he's not bothered by hell. He doesn't need to wait to, to, to come out of hell. He destroys hell. And in that way, he manifests and he delivers our salvation. And with that, I want to end this um, presentation on Bernard and Abelard with some literature references. As two theologians, in, in many ways, actually, um, 
thinking along similar lines of reform, uh, both in monastic and intellectual ways, but following very, very different paths. Thank you very much. Okay, tremendous, thank you. I, I'm reeling a little bit. I forgot to say at the beginning that it's a special pleasure to, to have you for this presentation as, as you're my doctoral advisor, my doctor mutter, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure. I've heard you lecture on, on Bernard and Abelard several times, and I learned something new every time, including, including today, so thank you so much. We have several questions uh, that we can, we can start going through. Uh, from from our attendees, uh, I think first from about one about Abelard. We'll try to balance Abelard and Bernard a little bit. Uh, 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 Paul asks about Abelard's uh, influence. He's he's steeped in the tradition. He's thinking about the tradition. Paul asks, was Abelard influenced by any Greek thinkers such as Plato or Aristotle or even pre-Socratic thinkers? Well, the pre-Socratic thinkers, I don't think were known at the time. He was clearly, uh, I quoted that he said, you know, if I, if I lose Christ and follow Aristotle, if, if following Aristotle, meaning that I cannot be following Christ, then he wouldn't want to have Aristotle. But Plato, I would say, would still be more important for um, Abelard. Uh, he is, that has not always been recognized in the past, fairly platonic. He gets in some trouble with that also because there's a way in which he sees um, the Holy Spirit as comparable to the world soul in Plato's Timaeus. So there is a, a way in which um, the Greek philosophers are very important for him. Um, yes, definitely. Uh, Abelard actually says that there are two, two sources for him of theology. Scripture is one. But the other is reason, and by reason he mostly means uh, ancient philosophy. So he will quote philosophers. Uh, he will quote philosophers in his theology fairly liberally, actually. Uh, so he would see them as um, as his peers, as his forebears, his predecessors. But of course, the difference would be that they would not be Christian, he, he recognizes that, but he certainly appreciates their contribution. Yes. That's really helpful. Yeah, thank you. And, and on the other side, uh, we have another question uh, about Bernard's uh, influences and perhaps some of his chief influences. Uh, another attendee asked, who, in who influenced Bernard's thinking? Were there any female thinkers involved? Uh, it, it's all a good question. Well, see, uh, what I was trying to say earlier that, that um, Abelard has this more modern conception of history with which comes the idea that you sort of acknowledge your sources, right? I got this there. Bernard doesn't do that. He doesn't say, you know, as often, maybe he does periodically, as Gregory says, he will just quote them. Actually, he will do the same with scripture. He'll quote it sometimes in his own words, as a result of which it may escape modern uh, concordances because it's not picked up if it's not quoted literally, right? So he would weave uh, the fathers into his own, um, his own uh, language. But I think Gregory the Great was certainly very, very important. 
also because of the, the Gregory had a commentary on the Song of Songs. So there is that kind of Song of Song tradition. To my knowledge, the influence of women writers in the Middle Ages comes somewhat later. They're also in the 12th century and, and later. So someone like Eckhart later will be influenced by, by uh, women mystics, but not Bernard. Um, he did think, by the way, very highly of Eloise, not of Abelard, but very highly of Eloise. And he seems to have visited her monastery, her convent. Right, right. And last week with Professor uh, Barbara Newman, she mentioned that Bernard had read her Scibias and yeah. thought highly of them. We, we, we have one attendee who asks, uh, Jeanette asks if, if perhaps, do we see any influence of Hildegard on Bingham in, in Bernard's thinking, perhaps on the incarnation? No, I don't think there is uh, um, influence of Hildegard, but he, he respected Hildegard. Mm -hmm. He respected Hildegard as well. I'm not sure that he met her. Actually, I really don't know. I've not, uh, I don't think so, but I don't know. Yeah, uh, I don't know if they met either. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. But she was well known and, and she was very respected. Um, and also she lived by the rule of St. Benedict, right? So she was in part of that same monastic uh, tradition. Mm -hmm. yeah. A lot of what we talked about then is, is two masters of their own crafts, dealing with tradition and extending it in some ways. Uh, Susan asked, Oh, if you could, if you could say a little bit more, or perhaps clarify about their, their how 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 if we were going to boil us down into into some crystalline ways, or maybe some slogans, mm -hmm. how how would we how do we look at their differences and how they deal with tradition? Susan asks, could you say a little bit more about their differences and their approaches to tradition? Well, I, I have focused a little bit, I think, of the ironies uh, of, of their differences, right? So Bernard is called the last of the father. Of course, that, that was a, a, a label from centuries later. But Abelard was trying to really do justice to the fathers and follow in their footsteps also, but marking clearly the difference between his contribution and that contributions of the father, right? Um, the 12th century often speaks of, of itself as uh, 12th century scholars are, are dwarfs on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. So Abelard recognizes that the fathers are giants and he doesn't see himself as more than a dwarf. Bernard doesn't buy into that terminology, I don't think. And Bernard has absorbed the fathers and speaks in their voice in a way. So Bernard styles for himself a role as that of the fathers. And I think he was sort of recognized as that. And I wanna add another irony to that. So Bernard sees Abelard as bringing a new gospel, right? We don't need the new gospel of Peter because we have the four. But the, the real reformer in a way was, was Bernard who was really, um, uh, well, he was living the rule of St. Benedict but the Cistercian order was a new order. It was doing innovation in a way, but it comes off as tradition. So I, I feel somehow, because I've read more Abelard than Bernard, I should say, I feel somehow that Abelard thinks that he's the new kid on the block, but I get, I get punished for being it, right? Because he tries to, to uncover tradition and situate himself vis-a-vis -vis tradition, and Bernard just 
takes the tradition and runs with it. Mm -hmm. um, but you cannot be sure that what Bernard presents as tradition thereby is tradition because you have no way of measuring it really or of uh, adjudicating it. Ah, okay, so that's really helpful. Uh, the, this big uh, clash, which, we, which has been uh, set up in some of the literature and our understanding of these two big personalities. Um, I, I, well, I like the way you handle it, but we have one attendee who's, who's, who wants to press us a little bit about, about this. Mm -hmm. uh, so Timothy asks a two-part question, which I think are both important, so we'll bring them. One's a theological one, and one is a more of a history of philosophy type of reception yeah. question. Here's the first one. The comparison of these two, Abelard and Bernard, reminds me of Jean Leclerc's The Love of Learning and the Desire for God, famous and important work on, on, this, on this period. In that work, Abelard and Bernard are set in fairly sharp relief, undoubtedly shaped by Leclerc's own context in the regime of neo-scholastic theology. It strikes me that you see a little bit, uh, a bit less sharp of a distinction between the two. Is that right? I think that is right. And um, I'm glad you mentioned Leclerc because I think recent scholarship, especially also by a German scholar, Peter von Moos, has um, pointed out that the, the, the correspondence between Abelard and Eloise, I haven't gone into the details of who wrote what, but, but it seems clear that it was meant to be an edited piece of work, right? Um, Maybe Eloise has done the final editing because she lived longer than, than Abelard. But it seems that Abelard and Eloise jointly, because we don't have Eloise's voice outside of this correspondence, and she was learned, she knew Hebrew, and she could have maybe become a Hildegard, but she mm. chose to speak only uh, in conversation with Abelard. It seems that that uh, uh, correspondence, including the rule and ending with the rule, was a kind of act of monastic reform mm -hmm. that Abelard and Eloise together advocated a, a form of monastic life where scholarly uh, work would be part of monastic life. Mm -hmm. And maybe women and men could collaborate in monastic life also. So mm -hmm. it's come out more that Abelard may have had a monastic reform agenda. I think especially because of the French reception of Abelard as a kind of Voltaire, uh, he was always seen as the intellectual who struggled with the yoke of the church. But I'm not sure that that is true of Abelard. Uh, I really do think he was a very faithful person, that that was not the issue. But, um, and I think he may have had this, this idea of uh, agenda of monastic reform as well. Hmm. Was, and so you are also anticipating, we want to come back to Heloise, but yes. you're also anticipating the, the next question here, which is about this, this larger dramatic reception of, of Abelard. Yeah. Uh, Timothy also asked, there is, a, there is a line of interpretation that reads Abelard as a precursor to modern enlightenment thought, as you yeah. were saying, Voltaire. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, his emphasis on dialectic methodological doubt, his yeah. own individual ingenu ingenuity in gainium against the weight of tradition. Is your emphasis on Abelard as a kind of proto-resourcement thinker, as well as the base commonalities between Abelard and Bernard, even as you see them working at cross purposes, further belie this Abelard as a proto-modern figure interpretation? 
Uh, I think that would be correct. Yes, I, I do want to move away from because I think the enlightenment terminology is is um, as is the Voltaire is is kind of anachronistic. It, it mm. just doesn't seem to work. Um, but but Abelard is kind of unfazed in which he says, as in the sick and non passage, that you know I want to have doubt and then uh, inquire and come to the truth because Christ did this as well. I mean, if, if Abelard was going for archetypal models, right, of the monk scholar, then I think ultimately Christ was his real model, Christ in the temple, Christ arguing with even the disciples or the Pharisees, he saw himself uh, as, as doing that. And he saw him, he saw the Christian tradition as having, giving you the latitude to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think he really, and it didn't occur to him, I think, that it would be out of bounds in some ways. I really don't think that occurred to him. I, I very much appreciate that reading. They're not, it's not the reason on one side and contemplation on the other side, exactly. but yeah. it's a much more complicated uh, inter interwebbing. Yeah. Uh, going, going back to, to Heloise, uh, this is this is one of these figures that, uh, like Hildegard, uh, sort of lies under the surface in some ways. We know so little about her, but she's so learned. Hannah asked a question about Abelard's rule for women and for Heloise. She asks, can you describe a little bit about the rule that Abelard wrote for women and the paraclete? Is it largely informed by the Benedictine tradition? Yes, I, it, it, uh, we actually had a class where we dealt with it recently. I, I, I'm less, you know, it's less spectacular than you would imagine in a way. It's easing some restrictions which might be otherwise more difficult for women. Um, but it's not, it's not all that, that different uh, in that sense. Uh, there is an interesting thing with, with uh, of course, the, the, the relationship between men and women that um, Abelard still feels that, that man should be in charge, right, of, of the, the monastery, of, of the convent of women. Mm -hmm. But um, a convent can have an abbess, and that abbess should be given respect. Uh, that seems to have been particularly for Eloise herself. And it, it seems he wants to give her a particular role of uh, respect. But other than that, it's not that spectacular actually, uh, at least from where I was coming, I was, you think of, of something very um, gender friendly and this will really open up possibilities for women. That is not the case. It's more the attention in a way that is given to women that um, that is un unusual, um, hmm. yeah, and innovative. And, but in that situation as well, it's another, it's, it's sort of based on the rule of Benedict, just like the sister. Yeah, definitely, yeah, that's not, not a change. It's just, yeah, yeah. it's Parallel just easing, easing some, some uh, of, of the demands on mm -hmm. women and making the burdens a lighter load, yes. Mm -hmm. in, this, in this vein of thinking about monastic and religious life in the 12th century, Aaron uh, asked about, uh, the, the comment you made about uh, worded by worded by example yes. as, is an important phrase in the 12th century. He asks, or Aaron asks, uh, by word as well as by example. Uh, you mentioned this is a significant 12th century theme. Would you please say more, a little bit more about yeah. this? Well, the, it becomes later uh, very important by the men for the mendicants too, the Franciscans and the Dominicans. 
the idea is that if you just teach but do not live out uh, your message through your lifestyle, then your teaching is less effective. Um, and it speaks a little bit to kind of the 12th century notion, I think, of monastic life, where it's very much an, an, a sense of not only an imitation of Christ, that's clear too, but it's also this apostolic sense that we live in a, in a world that is not yet perfect, also not yet perfectly converted, and in that sense, a, a broken world, and we have to contribute to undo the brokenness. And that is not just a matter of words, or your words will not have sufficient effect if they're not complemented and supported by your lifestyle. Um, and I think later for the mendicants and the Franciscans, it becomes very important as well that they really want to uh, live by, by, by receiving arms, right? Because that, that really fits their, their teaching as well, the mm -hmm. teaching of poverty. Uh, and it's interesting that it, we find it both in Abelard and Bernard. It's seen as a typically monastic theme, right? So the Cistercians, the Victorines, as you know. Mm. Um, but you find it in Abelard too. It was. It, it says both about how widely that that phrase was received, but also how in line with monastic tradition um, someone like Abelard was. Thank you. And and in all that. Uh, Going, going backing up a little bit to, to their relationship to, to tradition, but also to scripture in the, in the context of the monastic life. We have a question from uh, Professor Teresa uh, Gross-Diaz, whom I think you know, mm -hmm. of course you know, <laughs> uh, who, who asked about, about this in history, how they read, they read the Bible in terms of history. Uh, she oh, writes, yes. Mm -hmm. So let, let me read, yeah, the, the question is, regarding Abelard's and Bernard's different approaches to exegesis, your presentation made me think about how differently they used history. Yeah. Would you say the language of the Bible for Bernard was timeless? Therefore, in a way, there is no need to differentiate the senses of scripture. Whereas for Abelard, he was aware of the historical moment in a given biblical book that shaped the way a modern scholar could reasonably understand it. So Bernard's timeless reading versus, would you say that's? I actually, uh, I think that's a very fair uh, way of putting it, um, maybe better than I had to come up with. Uh, I, I hesitate a little bit in, in terms of timelessness. I do think there's a sense of eternity maybe in Bernard, but there's so much dynamic. Uh, when you associate timeless, timelessness with stagnancy or something, stagnation, that, then it's problematic. Uh, but there is a, a sense of, of, of um, eternity, I think so. Yes, the weight of that. And Abelard is... Um, I still think it, he can jump in and out of the, of the biblical language, but he can also jump out and Bernard doesn't jump out. Bernard stays within biblical discourse. Abelard goes out from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. Just looking at the, the sermons on the nativity that you presented, uh, it, it almost reminded me of Ignatius Loyola, right? Imagine the place. Yeah. Here are the shepherds doing this. Here, here are these people doing that, almost putting us back into the time yes. of, yeah. the, of the nativity. 
Yes, um, uh, that's true. And, and it goes, I mean, the third sermon on the nativity from which this passage was taken goes on uh, with, with, with kind of interesting passages where there's all of a sudden a death sentence is passed, uh, a mysterious death sentence, and then, and then it is Christ who is sacrificed, and that is why you're saved. Um, but the way the kind of uh, weight of something like a death sentence is linked with the, the infant in the cradle. I mean, it's all over the map in terms of, of emotional drama. And I think that's very often the case in Bernard. And that's, I, I've deliberately actually not touched today on the Song of Songs commentary because I feel then, then, then you get the same drama, but it's played out in terms of eroticism and it just leads to discussions that, that are, sometimes I feel absorbing everything about Bernard. So I didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. But um, you have that there too. There's a lot of, of, of drama, uh, which is in a sense, because it's between the human and the divine, uh, also a kind of dialectical drama, right? But, but Bernard would never call it that, but, but Abelard would. Um, so there is that same sort of tension that is running through his text that, that you get formalized as a tension in different ways in Abelard. Hmm. We, we're almost out of time. Uh, I think maybe just one more question uh, about the influence of Abelard and Bernard perhaps moving past their own time. Of course, they had huge influence of their own time, but maybe 13th, 14th in the century, the later tradition, maybe so for someone like Thomas or Bonaventure, who we'll be hearing about soon. Mm -hmm. uh, one of our attendees asks, what are Abelard and Bernard's influences in the later tradition, that yeah. is the reception, specifically Aquinas and maybe more recent theologians? Well, um... Uh, let's start with Bernard, because the one thing that's interesting to mention is that Bernard was especially beloved by Luther. Mm. And that is something that, if you didn't know that, might not have expected that. There's actually quite a bit of, of scholarship on that. But Luther really loves Bernard. And that just means that whereas the reformers despise the Middle Ages in general, you could say, Bernard is someone who again, because he stood out in, in so many ways and he uh, hides himself in, in the cloak of biblical language, uh, Luther could just absorb him and really was, was passionately attracted to Bernard. With Abelard, there, there's another kind of, there's on the one hand, this sort of French reception as this rational thinker who's not provincial, but really goes for, uh, for a kind of enlightenment um, uh, uh, reason. But Abelard is also really received in terms of logic. And I think Abelardian logic, which I'm by no way, uh, by no means an expert of, is, uh, became very in influential too. In terms of theology, I don't think, Ab I wish Abelard had more of, of an influence, but it's interesting that um, in, in looking at this, for this, um, you know, there, there are some recent books on Abelard that I've listed, Abelard and Eloise. There's really little on his theologies and they're not translated. They're not translated into English at all. Um, and they're not meant to translate into German or French completely either. Uh, Bernard, lots of it is translated, but there are no recent 
kind of monographs on, on Bernard. So it's sort of interesting that Bernard is available, but I don't think he's critically tackled at the moment. Uh, Abelard is not available. Um, and I don't think his, and that is still because there's a sense of heresy, unjustly, I think, that, that is still associated with Abelard. Hmm. So I don't think there's, there's influence on modern um, theologians. Ah. I, one last question right before Michael takes, takes it away from us. It, I, I was wondering about this, and, and I wonder about this sometimes, but also during your presentation, whether or not Abelard might have been born just a century too late, if he would have been happier as a mendicant or as a, as a Franciscan. Yes. So he said a century too early. Excuse me, a century yeah. too yeah. early. Thank you. Yeah. I think he would have he would have he would have been um, a, a schoolmaster, wow. and I think I think he probably would have been pretty. He would have done very well. I think. Oh, okay. Yes. So not I, neither of the mendicants, but but a, a regular schoolmaster. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe a mendicant. I don't know, but 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 he is between, and this was still possible in the 12th century. You didn't have to be. A monastic or a scholastic, those spheres were not completely divorced mm. as they would be uh, a century later. Mm. Thank you. Let me let me toss it back to to uh, to Michael. Well, indeed, I want to echo Rob's thanks here um, for you to bring some drama into our lives uh, during this uh, time in quarantine. And I want to thank you all for tuning in today. Um, you can find more details about our upcoming presentations on our website. And this is not the last time you have to tune in to see Professor Otten, but join us again in two weeks as she will be engaging in conversation with Bernard McGinn on a topical, um, a, a topical discussion on apocalypticism in times of crisis. Um, so you've seen the memes out there. You've heard about the murderous hornets. Um, you can tune in here to learn about the long history of the apocalyptic imagination. Um, I'd also invite you to help support our work. You can do so in two ways. Um, of course, you can support us at our website by donating at www.lumenchristi.org donate. And if you've appreciated this series, I'd invite you to share it with others. Um, share our posts, share our videos that are located um, on our YouTube page, pass on our emails. Um, you can even tweet, um, perhaps even live tweet about these events. Um, but help get word about um, one of the great things about knowledge is it's not diminished in its sharing. Um, so otherwise, thank you again, Professor Otten, for um, this fantastic presentation. Thank you, Rob, for organizing this series. Um, and I invite you all again to join us next week. Thank you, Professor Otten. Okay, thank you, Rob. <laughs> um...